0: Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. You know, here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources that God has entrusted to us. Now, regular listeners to the program know that uh, we do these Ministry Watch Extra episodes midweek. We still do our Friday weekly roundups. I do those with my co-host, Natasha Smith. But these midweek Ministry Watch Extra episodes are kind of a chance for us to go deep, you might say, with one of our editorial partners. Today, I'm pleased to have back to the program Michael Renault. Michael is the editor of World Magazine, and he comes to World after a successful tenure as the award-winning editor at the Greenville News a Daily Newspaper in East Tennessee. So, Michael, welcome back to the program. Good to be with you, Warren, as always. Yeah, it's uh, great to hear your voice again. And, you know, Michael, I want to spend a good bit of our program today talking about the pro-life issue for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is the pro-life issue as an issue is important to us here at Ministry Watch. There are a lot of ministries, uh, Christian ministries, that are focused on that issue. I think of Americans United for Life. I think of Save the Storks, focus on the family, the Family Research Council. These are all ministries that we track and follow here at Ministry Watch, they all care about and focus on the pro-life issue. But another reason, and I sort of use the word issue as a double entendre there, World for many, many years, in fact, I think almost from the very beginning, has had an annual pro-life issue. And um, because I know that issue is uh, an energizing issue for you guys at World as well. So let's start with the latter first. Um, Tell me about this year's uh, pro-life issue in World Magazine and how it's different from maybe some of the issues that you've done in the past. Sure, Warren. Well, as you said, we every year, um, as
1: close to the anniversary of the Roe v.ersus Wade Supreme Court decision as possible, we do feature this special issue. We've got a package of feature stories, um, other stories, too, inside the magazine, a couple of Q&A sessions that try to shine a spotlight on the Roe versus Wade issue on what's the latest happening, what are the latest happenings in, in terms of abortion in the United States and around the world. Um, and also just trying to keep the issue front and center. It's, it is one of the most important issues that our country continually faces. And, you know, there are questions about it every year perennially. This year's issue was different in that so much of 2020 was colored by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it really changed what was happening in the abortion industry and what was happening in the abortion world. Th- the biggest part of that, no doubt, has been the fact that um, Mifeprex or Mifepristone, the abortion pill, the so-called abortion pill, um, is reaching more and more households because as part of the pandemic measures that several state governments and others took in 2020 um, – state governments scale back some of the restrictions on the abortion pill itself. So the FDA had implemented guidelines on when the pill could be, could be prescribed to women and when women could get their hands on the pill to facilitate a chemical abortion. And lots of places scaled those regulations back. Um, FDA got involved in some court battles. Uh, but our coverage this year in the Roe v. Wade issue, a lot of it is geared towards that particular question. One one story in particular focuses just on what's happened in the last year, again, in the U.S. and around the world. But there's also history here, too. Um, some folks will tell you, Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times among them, some folks will tell you that things like potions and pills and oils, things to incite abortions, Um, were legal centuries ago in colonial America, and that common law had no restrictions, and that uh, the move to lock down women's access to abortifacients is a relatively new thing. But Marvin Alasky, our editor-in-chief, went through the historical record and actually has done some reporting and some writing on how that's just not true. And if you look at the historical record in several states um, in colonial America, the facts do not bear that claim out at all. Uh, So there's a story that looks at that. Uh, another kind of, um, I, a lot of times we use the phrase ahead of his times um, to speak in glowing or complimentary terms about somebody, but Lawrence later was somebody who was ahead of his times in that he was an advocate for abortion before the Roe v. Wade decision. Um was close to Margaret Sanger and was militant oftentimes in his views, but he was also somebody who was pushing the abortion pill decades ago before it was what it has become now. Um, and so in that sense, in a very uh, sad way, he was a man ahead of his times, and so we've got um, a profile of sorts about him. And, and then a kind of a mainstay in our Roe v Wade issue every year is just a recap of what's happened in the abortion fight and in the pro life fight um Again, in the U.S. and around the world. And Leah Hickman, who covers pro-life issues and and abortion issues for us at World, has just done a fantastic job of bringing together several different strands to do reporting in that story, but also a couple other stories in the issue as well. So it's just trying to keep uh, the issues in front of people, keep the issues in people's prayers and and keep these issues in people's awareness so that they know what's going on and and can be aware of um, what we need to be praying for and how we need to be acting.
0: Well, you know, Michael, I first of all, I agree with you. I think Leah Hookman does a fantastic job covering the life issue and the and the abortion uh, movement for World. But I, I want to drill down into um, some a couple of things that you said. And you may not know the answer to this, and I totally understand that. But um, you, looking at abortion numbers is kind of tough because we don't get numbers immediately. Sometimes the numbers are two, three, even four years old or more. But I think it's fair to say that for the last decade or more, the number of abortions in this country has been going down and not up. However, the latest data that I've seen um, shows that sometime around 2017 or 2018, um, the numbers, at a, at a minimum, they're flattening out. And it's possible that they're even going back up again. And I think chemical abortions may be contributing to that. Does your coverage say anything about that? Yeah, that's right, Warren. We don't get into the hard numbers on some of those things,
1: simply for the, the reason that you stated. The numbers can be very hard to come by, and there's a, there's a lagging uh, dynamic that happens on some of them. But um, actually, in an introduction to this special section, Marvin Alasky does point out, uh, yes, the number of abortions are going down every year, and that's a testament to um, the work of pro-life folks in a lot of different areas, uh, crisis pregnancy centers, um, folks who really emphasize both caring for the baby but caring for the mother uh, in all these situations, and that's happening around the world. There's certainly a, a tide of state regulations where you have more pro-life folks getting into positions of influence within state houses um, And those are definitely having an effect on the ground. Um, So overall, the numbers are going down. However, we do point out in our coverage that, yes, chemical abortions are going up. I think 2020, you're going to see that a lot if the the numbers are are able to be figured, I guess. Um, But a lot of that is because the abortion bill has gone out to a lot more homes and killed a lot more babies. And many times, again, under the auspices of we've got to take care because of the pandemic. Women don't need to be going in a doctor's office, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, let's just ship these pills to them directly. And that's what, unfortunately, many companies have started doing more and more of.
0: Well, one of the other changes um, about the pro-life movement this year as opposed to last year, and I'll just use the March for Life as an example. Last year, the March for Life had tens of thousands of people, maybe as many as 100,000 people. And President Trump was the speaker. He actually spoke in person. He's the only president that's ever spoken. This year, it was because of COVID, a virtual event. And there seemed to be a little bit more of a pivot away from politics and towards uh, sort of unity within the pro-life movement. Did you guys uh, do any coverage along those lines? Um, not specifically along those lines in terms of um, unity
1: along along the lines. I, I do think one interesting dynamic that's come up in the last few years, and you've got people like David French um, raising questions like this. And in fact, we we had a feature story back in the summer, I believe, um, looking at Donald Trump. Donald Trump got a lot of pres- a lot of credit rather as the most pro life president. Uh, it was kind of a moniker that followed him around among. Um, supporters of his and folks in the pro-life movement, particularly in Washington, D.C., and some of those places. Um, but we looked at some of the promises he, promises he made on the, on the pro-life front, before he took office or early in his tenure, um, beginning in 2017 and reached a conclusion that, uh, Donald Trump did a lot for the pro life movement. Um, but there are things that he said that, uh, he wanted to try to do that did he really make an effort to get some of those things done in Congress, um, uh, or other means? The, the jury's out on some of those questions. But I think all that kind of underscores one of the points you're, you're making, Warren, or at least you're alluding to, um, which is that, Politics is an important part in all of this, but politics is not the main player. It may not be the, the, the best hammer always to get at some of the nails, um, that we need to get at in order to, you know, fight back against abortion, to bring some of those numbers down. Um, I think more and more people with a Democratic administration now in office are, Probably going to see that and are you know probably talking about some of these things. Questions about the Hyde Amendment and the Mexico City policy. Um, these are have already come up early in the Biden administration. They're going to continue to come up. Um, but that's one thing about having a, a presidential administration or a party in control in Congress that, for the most part, is antagonistic toward the pro-life movement. Uh, is that it has a way to galvanize folks in the movement and pro-life people in general to find other ways to, uh, to keep trying to drive the numbers down one way or the other, whether it's chemical abortions or surgical abortions, I guess.
0: Well, I agree. I think one of the positive things that could come out of this is that uh, we will look for ways other than politics to uh, create a culture of life in this country, we can only hope. You know, Michael, we've got to take a short break, but when we return, I want to take a look at how politics are shaping the year ahead um, by looking at an article by Jamie Dean uh, in a recent issue. I'm Warren Smith. My guest this week is Michael Renault with World Magazine, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with
1: Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. That's
0: SaveTheStorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Warren Smith, and this week my guest is Michael Renaud with World Magazine, and we're taking a look at some of world's recent coverage on issues that we think are of uh, import uh, to the Christian community and uh, Christian ministry leaders and donors in particular you know michael uh, Jamie Dean, uh, you know in the last segment, we said, uh, we hope politics will kind of take a back seat, and other cultural issues will come to the forefront uh, I, I may be talking out of both sides of my mouth then whenever I say that I think Jamie did a great job with a story uh, that was in fact a cover story in the most recent issue uh, the um, cover had the words, the insurrectionist heresy, and the story itself was called Crisis of Faith. Um, so let's start right there. I mean, what what did Jamie identify as the crisis we are facing, and how is it a heresy?
1: Well, to put it in pretty broad terms, um, I think one question that we wanted to raise in this story—and again, Jamie Jamie did a really good job, a nuanced job of doing it—is uh, whether or not our politics as evangelicals, um, as, as conservatives in, in many respects, has our politics kind of infused too much with our faith. Um, one of the hot button terms or phrases you hear now after the January 6th um, riots and insurrection attempt at the Capitol uh, is Christian nationalism, and a lot of folks use that term in different ways. That phrase never appears in this particular story, but I suppose that what we're trying to get at is what some folks mean when they use a term like Christian nationalism, but just basically an unhealthy fusing of our politics and our faith. Where we're getting at I mean, thousands of people streamed into uh, the Capitol, or at least were on the grounds, and many of them streamed into the Capitol building itself on January 6th. Certainly, uh, many, many, many folks in that crowd were not Christians or were not claimed to be Christians, but it was inescapable to see some of the images that came out of that day. Um, folks walking around the floor of the Senate chambers with a Christian flag, or one of the flags that we drew attention to, which, which made the rounds that day, Jesus is my Savior, Trump is my President, all on the same flag, in the two phrases separated by an American flag. Um, as part of that emblem, people walking around the dais um, inside the Senate chamber or the House chamber and, and praying. And and Jamie went through some of the affidavits that the FBI has used in charging folks accused of... Um, you know, trespassing, essentially, or or walking up or through the Capitol. And a lot of these folks in their statements that they gave to the FBI in the course of being uh, investigated and charged, um, highlights, you know, Christian faith in some respect. Um, one person, uh, said that the blood of Jesus covers him, and so he doesn 't need to worry about the results of what happens after he was you know charged with being inside the capitol being part of this mob that went inside and so you know we 're not trying to make the point that Christians are all to blame for what happened on January sixth that it was only Christians or there weren't bad actors of other sorts of different value of different worldviews rather who are part of that, but you can't avoid the fact that um Christian symbols and Christian language became part of this furor that developed and kind of the lid popped off on January 6th, I guess you could say. We also point to things like the Jericho March and statements that very well-known um Writer and speaker and author Eric Metaxas has made, but folks like that who have a lot of influence within the evangelical subculture, I guess. Um, have we used that influence responsibly? Um, or have we gotten so caught up in kind of the political football and politics as blood sport sort of mentality in this country that we really have not set up the right kind of boundaries to say politics is important. It's an area we ought to be engaged in. Absolutely no doubt about that. But do we trust God for the results? of elections? Do we trust God for the results um, when it comes to presidential administrations or the party in power in Congress um, coming down in different ways than we would on certain policy questions? Um, And so we're trying to throw those questions back at our readers and back at our audience in healthy ways and encouraging ways, hopefully, um, but also ways that try to avoid some of the Christian nationalism speak that's been going on.
0: Well, Michael, I want to pivot in our conversation to talk about something that in some ways is kind of related to that earlier issue. Because I do think that that um, uh, part of the frustration in our country that Trump was able to sort of capitalize on um, is, a, is kind of a sense that um, uh, by many people that their voice is not being heard. In the culture. And um, that brings me to my next uh, story. The one I want to get you to comment about was that a story of how certain organizations are getting canceled or deplatformed on social media. This week, for example, focus on the family. Uh, had one of its Twitter accounts suspended for calling a transgender person a, quote, man who believes he is a woman, which, of course, from my point of view, that is exactly what a transgender person is. A focus on the family was doing nothing other than telling the truth in that particular case. And yet it was exactly what got kicked them off of social media. You guys have a uh, story that looks at this phenomenon of uh, cancel culture and deplatforming a little more broadly than just the focus on the family story. Can you tell me about that? Sure.
1: Yeah. And I should point out, we we wrote this story and published the story before um, before that particular incident with focus on the family. But that, I mean, to your point, Warren, that's not the only incident. That's not the first incident of this happening. It's happened elsewhere. I mean, it really comes down to, um, well, one of my other colleagues at World, Mindy Bells, made a comment uh, to me about this. And Something to the effect of it, it probably really is healthy for us to to feel tension on some of these things. On the one hand, you've got private companies and institutions like Twitter um, or Amazon, and they should have the right to moderate, I guess you could say, their platforms or moderate their businesses as as they see fit. But the problem arises when you've got some of these companies that are the only outlet for other private companies or entities or individuals. Uh, They're the only outlet for those folks or entities to have into the marketplace, and they don't apply the same rules consistently across the board. So that's what this story was trying to get at. I mean, in the wake of the Parlor episode, one of the things that happened with Parler, was, which is, uh, for those who aren't familiar, is a social media outlet. A lot of folks see it as a parallel or analogous to Twitter, but being more friendly to conservative points of view. Um, they generally moderate and mediate the people on their website uh, a whole lot less than uh, Twitter does. And so um, – you know, I, I should say Then the days after the January 6th attack, there were a lot of violent messages on Parler. Uh, one of our reporters looked around on there, and so Parler wasn't squeaky clean in terms of only being the home of angels, I guess you could say. But no social media platform is. But after Amazon took action to get Parler off of its web servers, another company, Epic, stepped in, and Parler was able to eventually get back online using Epic as a web domain hosting company. Other companies began putting pressure on Epic to shut down. And tech site like Gizmodo, for example, dismissed Epic as, quote, a harbor for D platform cesspools. But one of the interesting things about all this is that Epic is competing with companies like GoDaddy.com and other web domain hosting companies Some of the criticism against Epic was that they were hosting companies that the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, has designated as hate groups. And there are all kinds of problems and issues with the SPLC's designations on hate groups. But what our reporter found was that other platforms like GoDaddy uh, also host – SPLC designated hate groups but you don't hear about those particular platforms or companies coming under fire or taking criticism for um, you know offering platforms or offering websites to those same groups and organizations. So really the problem here is there's again there's this there's this tension that we have in this country right? Private companies should be able to police and moderate and do what they want with their, uh, with their companies and with their clientele, I guess, to a degree. But what we have are some bad faith actors, uh, it appears, who want to push more and more folks from a conservative persuasion or biblical worldview out of the public square. And that's really where the problem arises. And there are not very many easy answers for how to deal with this or how to get people to deal with these issues more
0: judiciously, more fairly. Well, no, you're exactly right. There aren't easy answers, um, though. I, I've got—I mean, obviously, as a journalist, I have a very, very high regard for the First Amendment. But uh, I think where I come down on this, uh, Michael, is that the First Amendment protects us from government overreach. It pre- it protects us from the government uh, uh, restricting or restraining or abridging our speech. It does. It it doesn't really make any comment about private companies like Twitter and Facebook. And that that takes me to this conclusion. And I'll just say it out loud for the benefit of, you know, any of my, any ministry leaders uh, or, or thought leaders and influencers that might be listening to us right now. I have never thought that the social media companies were our friends, that um, Twitter and Facebook um, have never been our friends they've they've never been friends of conservative organizations and they've never been friends of um you know the uh civil discourse in in the public square generally i have been counseling uh christian leaders for years that they should not count on twitter and facebook to help them build their their organizations and their their sphere of influence that they need to do that privately with their own email list and with their own direct communication with their supporters and their donors it's hard to take that advice on board I use Twitter and Facebook but uh, man oh man I I just think that uh, if we depend upon it too much no matter what our political persuasion is, that ultimately we're going to regret it.
1: Yeah, Warren, well, I think you're right. I think the other thing to remember in all this, too, and this ties back into the politics conversation um, that we were having earlier, too. I mean, Jesus tells us uh, several times in the Gospels that if we are abiding by His commands, if we are doing the things He asks us to do and doing the things that He modeled us to do, we're not going to be popular people, right? We are going to be um, despised by the culture, um, the New Testament is clear that we're going to have a lot of things hurled our way. Many, many of those things will not be true. We will be lied about, um, called names, we'll be ostracized. We should be expecting that. So, to your point, Warren, I think it's true. We, If we live by the sword, we're going to die by the sword. If we live and build our organizations and build our followings and our platforms and our donor lists, et cetera, by Facebook and by Twitter and by groups like this, we should not be surprised when something happens and those things turn on us. There have been Email marketing companies that have, you know, gotten to this conversation, too, in recent months. Um, It it doesn't mean that there are easy answers. It doesn't mean that there are easy ways around that. But we shouldn't be surprised um, when situations like this happen because Jesus told us that stuff like this was going to happen, you know, in one sense or another.
0: Yeah, exactly right. Well, Michael, we've got to uh, end our time together, but I just want to say once again how much I really appreciate what you guys do at World Magazine. Uh, we uh, here at Ministry Watch depend upon World uh, for a lot of the stories that we do, we, we um, are grateful for the many, many years of ministry that you guys have had there. And I'd just like to remind all of our listeners that if you want to find out more about the stories that Michael and I have discussed today, you can go to World Magazine's website. And I keep saying World Magazine, but it's actually World News Group. They've got video products now. They've got all kinds of podcasts. So it's World News Group, and that's why their website is WNG.org. So go to WNG.org and you can see uh, the stories that Michael and I have discussed today. To find out more about Ministry Watch, of course, you can go to our website, which is ministrywatch.com. We'd be grateful if you would rate this program on your podcast app. Uh, I don't really understand how it works, but I've been told that the more ratings we get, the more discoverable our program will be on search engines. So please go and rate the podcast. It doesn't cost you a dime. It helps us out a lot. Now, something that would cost you a dime would be to contribute either to World or to Ministry Watch. We are both donor-supported uh, organizations, and we would be grateful uh, for your financial contributions as well. And I would say that during the month of February, Ministry Watch is offering Brian Fickert's book, When Helping Hurts. It is a classic uh, in the world world of charity and philanthropy, you need to have a copy of this book in your library, and you can get one by going to ministrywatch.com and clicking on the donate button at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosell and Steve Gandy. We get database technical and editorial support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Christina Darnell, and Casey Suddeth. Thanks to Leah Hickman and Jamie Dean of World for providing material for our conversation on today's program. I'm Warren Smith, along with my guest today, World's editor, Michael Renault. and you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.